Strong voices. It's not just about one state. It's not just about one community. It's about all of our communities. The issues that face Indigenous peoples around the world sit at the heart of the questions that we're asking about the future of our political order. I am here and now, and I speak my language. I practice my cultural essence of me. What we do need is a more critical race consciousness in this country, a preparedness to talk about race, to talk about the way in which racialised logic are inscribed upon our bodies and to critically examine them in order to change it. The government's changed, but we're going to be still here. We're always going to be still here. We've been here for 65,000 years and I don't think we're going to go anywhere. What the system still struggles with is this collaboration with First Nations people. A strong voice is an Aboriginal voice. Good morning and welcome to Strong Voices. I'm your host for the program, Kyle Dowling, coming to you live from the Calm Radio Studios here in Ubuntu Island Springs in the Red Centre, which is quite cold this morning. We are broadcasting to uh, all nations through Vast Channel 911. We're also coming to you uh, online via our website, that's karma.com.au. Today is Tuesday, the 4th of June, 2019. Coming up on Strong Voices today, a new report into the financial position of Australia's First Nations peoples has revealed a large number are experiencing financial exclusion from various financial services, such as banking, insurance and superannuation and more sort of services along those lines. Well, today we're going to be hearing from one of the organisations who are a part of that report, the First Nations Foundation. We're going to be hearing from their CEO, Amanda Young, uh, not too long. Uh, we're also going to be hearing from. Uh, we're also going to be hearing about TEDx, which is a leading platform to share ideas and uh, creativity. This morning, we are going to hear from Jacinta uh, Kulmatri, who's going to be who spoke during uh, TEDx talks in Adelaide, in South Australia. We're also going to be hearing uh, about the uh, Pudgy Doors Award, which is uh, Australia's premier award for achievement in teaching non-Indigenous languages. Our brother Stephen Morelli will, was one of the recipients of the award due to his work in Aboriginal communities and teaching the. Uh, uh, the Goomba language. Uh, we're also, of course, going to be hearing the latest in uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from right across the country. Hey, you fellas, this is Gail Mabe. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio, 8 Kin FM. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices this Tuesday morning. Great to have your company. We're going to be heading into our first story now. In late May of 2019, the First Nations Foundation, the Centre for Social Impact in the National Australian Bank, released a report exploring the financial resilience of First Nations peoples. I recently spoke with the CEO of First Nations Foundation, Amanda Young, and I began our conversation by asking her why the report was conducted. The reason why we did this report is that until Wednesday of last week, late May 2019, there has not been any data on Indigenous finances in Australia. You'd be amazed to know that it's true. Financial services, banks, superannuation, insurance don't collect this information and government doesn't either except for maybe some census data. So this is the first time we've been able to see into the financial position of Indigenous Australians around the country. The reason why we haven't seen these reports before is because financial services don't know who of their customers are Indigenous. They don't collect the data, they don't ask. 
Okay, so in terms of this report then, how, how was it actually conducted? Can you give us some of the insight in terms of how it was run? Because I believe there was a survey, sure. yeah? So this is a complex multiple methodology research project. We did an online survey to cover urban and regional Indigenous people, and we also did face-to-face surveys in remote communities. So we covered across all three lenses of remote regional and urban Australia, and it was over 600 people who participated. And in terms of some of the things that people were being asked or things like that, can you, can you reveal some of that, like some of the questions sure. and stuff like that? This research has been done for many years by National Australia Bank and the university with mainstream Australia. It's been a, uh, an ongoing series of how is the financial resilience of Australians. And there has never been any data that was reliable for Indigenous Australians. So they created a special research project just to fill that void, which is where First Nations Foundation came in and we helped collect that data for them. The questions that were being asked, most of them were the same as with mainstream Australia. Things like, as you imagine with financial resilience, it's kind of like the safety bubble around you. If things went wrong, if life happened, what would you do? How would you get $2,000? Do you have insurance cover? Have you got savings? Those are the sorts of questions we were asking, but we also added in special questions for Indigenous Australians because we know that different things are operating in the um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cohort. What were some of the key findings that have been revealed by this report? We previously thought that Indigenous people were being excluded from financial services at about 43%. We're really concerned to say that this research has shown that 75% of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people had trouble in the last 12 months dealing with financial services. Second thing, 9 in 10 Indigenous people are not financially secure. Compare that to the mainstream, it's only 1 in 10 are not financially secure. The research showed that 1 in 2 Indigenous people is suffering severe financial stress. That means they can't feed themselves. There's not enough food in the fridge. There's not enough money to make things go round. That's a large number of people to be suffering at the real edge of poverty. From your point of view, do do we know why we're seeing such concerning rates there? It's a combination of things. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people don't have great financial literacy. So we need to really build those skills up. And I don't know that anyone expects Aboriginal people to just miraculously get that. That will probably mean that we need government and financial services to invest in building financial knowledge. It's a life skill. Understanding how the economy works has never been explained to Indigenous Australians. And I think most Australians have forgotten that it was only since the 1970s that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people have been legally allowed to own property or earn their wages cash in hand. So think about it, 1970s, how long would it take you to save for a house or buy a house? Probably a generation. So we're now at the, really the genesis generations of people who are trying to work out how does money work and how can I make it work for me? Number two is that we need financial services to lift their game, to be honest. We're talking banking, we're talking superannuation, we're talking insurance, and we're also eventually going to be talking about the wealth sector. So you might have remembered from the Royal Commission, there was plenty of evidence that there's problems with Indigenous people right at the interface. The first contact with financial services, Aboriginal people bounce off. 
Why? One, it's not a very friendly interface. The second thing is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will have identification challenges. Thirdly, financial services are just not geared to helping the poor. They're really, their whole business model is about helping people who have money and what to do with that money. And we feel that that's a place where something does really need to change. The third one I would say would be government has to change its focus in this area. But overall, rather than financial services like banks and superannuation tinkering around the edges, what our foundation would say after seeing this research result is to say, you need to reframe the whole way you're going about this and ask yourselves the question, how are we going to help Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders achieve prosperity, however that is defined by them? I understand uh, one of the things that obviously that was looked at was in regards to the financial aspirations or you know or goals and things like that. How do Indigenous money aspirations sort of differ from non-Indigenous? Any black seller out there will know that the perception of self is in a collective. So Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, if you're doing fine with money yourself, that's really not the goal. It's to make sure your family and your mob's doing okay as well. So that's the first thing that really came out strongly. The second thing is that if one and two are suffering financial stress, guess who is helping support those in financial stress? It's the number two. <laughs> so number one's in financial stress and number two's helping. So a lot of the money's being shared back with community. I don't think I know anyone who doesn't share some of their income with family to help out. Other things that are different around prosperity concepts, uh, Indigenous people have modest ideas of what wealth is. It can be a full fridge. It can be living without money troubles. The concept is yet to emerge or may never emerge about the idea of accumulating huge amounts of wealth in the way that Westerners do. And last week, in the same week that our report was released, the rich list came out. And we saw that uh, Mr. Pratt was, I can't remember how many billions of dollars he has, but it was considerably high and Gina Reinhart and all of the, the titans, I guess, of the, of the economy were there. And that is something that is not only foreign for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but to be honest, when our researchers went out and did fieldwork, they laughed when they suggested, what would it be like to be wealthy? What do you think are the important things that we need to take away from a report like this in, in terms of moving forward and making the changes so that, uh, you know, First Nations peoples aren't suffering as much from, you know, burdens of financial stress and things like that and are actually able to engage with financial services? The government needs to put some attention in this area. I say that because even though the economy is taken care of by financial services, it is a space where where government is investing considerable amounts of money. I think it's $33 billion a year to try and close the gap and help Aboriginal people. And not one cent of that is going towards the financial wellbeing of Indigenous Australians. It's a huge gap in the policy. It's a big thing to be missing if you want to change Indigenous people's lives, of course. Everyone's going to do better if they have more money, if they know how to make their money work better for them and they can achieve better health and education and, and life outcomes. The second area that has to change is financial services. While we really appreciate the small efforts that are being made to create a phone line so Aboriginal people can call in and having that staffed by culturally competent people, 
That's wonderful, but we believe that the true investment, the best investment, is in Indigenous people and training and educating Aboriginal people about the financial system. We reckon that is the better buy and bang for buck and the better investment. And then finally, for Indigenous Australia, we've really got to start to engage on this economy about how can we learn these skills and share these skills and understand how we're in this Western capitalist economy. How can we better serve our needs, our communities, our families by understanding the rules of this game and getting really actively involved in it? This is the first time the, the invisible has been made visible. And what we're seeing is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, when it comes to the economy, it's like they're playing snakes and ladders, but it's all snakes, no ladders. There's no knowledge of how this system works and understanding the rules of the game. And we feel like that really does have to change. And we feel like it's time to do that now. It's such a wonderful opportunity. We've got an Indigenous minister for the first time. We've got an acceptance by the government that closing the gap isn't working. And we think that there's, we found a missing piece of the puzzle for the government. And then finally, we know that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are growing their wealth and growing the economy really quickly. We've had so much land returned over the last 20 years. It's now 40% of Australia's land mass. We've got exponential growth in Indigenous businesses. The macroeconomic pressures are really building for Aboriginal people to get engaged in the economy. And we're all being held back by financial literacy and poor systems, surely we can sort all of these out and move forward and have a prosperous First Nations population. That was Amanda Young there, CEO of the First Nations Foundation. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices. We're going to head into our next story now for this Tuesday morning. Adnamatna Nanandjuri woman, uh, Jacinta Kulmatri, is in the final year of her Master's in Archaeology and Heritage Management at Flinders University in Adelaide, researching Euromalka uh, rock art with a focus on centering Indigenous knowledge. At the beginning of 2017, Jacinta began working at the South Australian Museum with the aim of changing the way museums portray and work with Aboriginal people. Jacinta says she wants to change the way people think about Aboriginal people by showing that their knowledge has a place in this world. This talk, which focuses on the myth of Aboriginal stories uh, being myths, was given at a uh, TEDx conference in Adelaide. Prior to 1836... Ghana people, the Aboriginal and continuing owners of the land that we meet on today, use their sacred sites, ceremonial grounds and cemeteries for their purpose. When the concept of Adelaide came into being, many of these places were destroyed, along with many of the people. It is important that I acknowledge that we are on Ghana land because I'm going to tell you some stories from my people, the Adyamatna people. Adyamatna Yatta, or Adyamatna land, lies six hours north of here in what is commonly known as the Flinders Ranges. Just last year, archaeological evidence showed that we had been here for over 45,000 years. The first story I'm going to tell you about 
is a Yamuchi. But in order for me to tell you about this story, I need you to close your eyes. Close your eyes and imagine that you're a child, no older than five. It's night time. It's getting darker. You're with your cousins outside playing. Your aunties and your nanas are talking. But then one of your aunties says, all right, you kids, you need to come sit down because that Yamachi is going to come get you. And all of your cousins get scared. But you're a bit confused because you've never heard of the Yamachi before. And so you go to your auntie and you say, auntie, what's the Yamachi? And she looks at you and she says, the Yamachi is a big, scary monster. He's bigger than you, and he's even bigger than me. So if you see that Yamati, you need to quickly run because he steals kids. The best place for you to go is to quickly run and climb up a tree because the thing about the Yamati is that he can't look up. He can only look down or side to side. He'll be able to smell you, but he just won't be able to see you. So you stay in that tree until one of us comes and gets you. You can open your eyes. The story about the Yamati came up last year when I was started doing, looking at research into rock art studies in South Australia as a postgraduate archaeology student. I was looking at one study and it had two anthropologists during the 1960s looking at extinct animals. They were interested in whether megafauna had coexisted with Aboriginal people. In particular, they were interested in one animal known as the Diprotodon. This animal was a large wombat-like creature that became extinct around 47,000 years ago. They found a footprint which they believed was the footprint of a diprotodon. And they did this by looking at the skeleton of one footprint and matching it with the image of the diprotodon's footprint. And because of this, they came to the conclusion and the idea became more interesting that Aboriginal people and megafauna had coexisted. The thing that I found most interesting about this story was that Aboriginal people were barely included. The only way that we were included was as informants. Back around that time, Aboriginal people were mostly used as people who they get information from and then go and tell the world about who these strange people were. They never really took in any information. This didn't surprise me because at the time, Aboriginal people weren't even included in the national count of people. You see, prior to the 1967 referendum to change the constitution, Aboriginal people were specifically left out. And this was because of two reasons. The first reason was that they believed that we were closer to animals than we were human. The second reason 
was that they believed that we were dying out, which is clearly not true because I'm here today. <laughs> the thing that surprised me most is that I had grown up knowing about this animal. And if you hadn't realised by now, that animal is the Yamatu. The story that my nana told my mother, my mother told me and my sister, who told my niece, is the same story, the same animal that they were looking for in this rock up. And this is a picture that my niece drew of the Yamatu. <laughs> the thing is, all of our stories actually talk about megafauna. I don't think there's too many stories out there that talk about a small animal. All of them, or at least most of them, are big. Such as the story of the large snake. This snake ate too much sap from an acacia tree and it vomited all across the land. The places where this snake vomited are known to you as uranium. And so, Uranium, to us, is poison. And most of these places right now are used as uranium mines. At the time, Adyumatna people disagreed with mining. However, the Australian law never let us say no. Rather, we had the right to negotiate what we received. And what we received was payment. A payment that I can tell you is less than about enough for a week's worth of food for a family. So, you've probably heard about these stories as myths or as legends in books, in your classrooms, but can you really say that these stories are as simple as myths? 50,000 years worth of occupation it tends to get thrown around a lot, like it's nothing. But here are 50 squares, each square representing 1,000 years. Then, if you look at the square on the right-hand side, that is the time that Europeans have been on this continent. And I'm not even talking about James Cook. I'm talking about the first European boat that sailed past and said, I see land. So if we've been here for that long, why aren't we considered experts about the land? How is it that 239 years worth of knowledge is equivalent to 50,000 years worth of knowledge? The stories I've told you today come from my elders, elders of the people in our community who have the knowledge that is equivalent in white Australian society of a PhD degree, which is why they are central to my research. Whatever they say I can and can't do, I listen to. You've probably met an elder at a welcome to country but how many of you can say that you've talked to an elder outside of a welcome to country? If the only time we talk to elders 
is when we're asking them for a welcome to country, then we are not seeing them as the people that they are. We're not seeing them as teachers, as guides, as instructors. It's time to move on from only seeing elders as people who provide welcomes. It's time to see them in positions where they can make decisions and see them for what they truly are as the leaders of this nation. Thank you. That was Atmata and Nanajuri woman there, Jacinta Kumatri there, who's speaking at a TEDx conference in Adelaide uh, last year. We're going to be hearing from uh, Stephen Morelli uh, about the uh, recent language award winning, uh, recent award that he has won for teaching non-English languages, I should say. Hey, this is Kathy Freeman. You're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices here on Calm Radio. It's around uh, 40 minutes past 11 o'clock. If you're just joining me, here with me, uh, Carl Dowling, on Strong Voices, we're going to head into our next story now. A Christian brother, uh, brother Stephen Morelli, is one of the joint winners of the uh, Paju Doors Award, which is Australia's premier award for achievement in teaching languages other than English. He's a uh, teacher and linguist who has worked closely with Aboriginal communities on the mid the mid north coast of New South Wales for over thirty years, working to revive and teach the uh, Gumbangir language. Brother Stephen compiled a dictionary and grammar of uh, Gumbangir and co-developed courses up to certificate level three. Calm Radio's Lorena Walker recently caught up with him for this interview. I'm a Christian brother, and I was teaching uh, in schools uh, before I was uh, asked to join the Aboriginal people and uh, I went to Kempsey then and the people there asked me uh, would I uh, recover their language and, and uh, look at their their stories and songs and so on. So I, I that was about uh, 1986 I started in Kempsey doing that with the local uh, Gumbangar people. They were actually people living on Dungati land, but they had been taken down uh, from their own uh, territory a bit further north to Kempsey uh, to a mission there. And uh, the mission had closed, but they saw me there. So I worked with them as a little club. The club turned into a big organisation, the Murabai Language Centre, and uh, I am sort of like... Uh, uh, hang around there, you know, helping yeah. with uh, language and stuff. And just reading like a little bit of your story, you are a uh, recipient of the Pudgy Doors Award. Yeah, it was a great honour and I regard it as a great honour f- from the Aboriginal people, really. Gary Williams sponsored me. He's uh, a Gumbanga elder and he sort of spoke on behalf of the people. So I regard any honour for me is really a part of that, belongs to them, really. Congratulations on receiving that award. And I suppose just for your own journey, living and working among Aboriginal people, the journey, how has that been for you and what have you learned throughout your I journey? Suppose, yeah. I suppose the people that I work with might have lost some of the kinship structures, but they haven't lost a huge sense of family, and that's something that I've been given. Uh, that family is so important 
and family isn't just uh, your local brother and sister and father and mother and wife. It's a much bigger idea, a belongingness that is something that uh, has been very good for me. And even though the people might have uh, lost the kinship terms as to section names and things like that, that hasn't really disappeared. It's it's only the names that have disappeared for it. Also, just reading a little bit about you you having compiled a dictionary and grammar for the Umbanga. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Well, our little club there, which all uh, Gumbanga people, we really needed some uh, resources uh, so that we could share it with uh, younger people. And so I uh, went to uh, the place in Canberra, Ayatsis. It was called, uh, actually, um, it didn't have the TI part in when I went there, but uh, I, I collected all the tapes and language materials uh, and brought them back and, and started writing them all down and collecting them and uh, working with uh, local people that still had the language, which uh, weren't a lot of people. I remember our Uncle Manny de Silva from Armadale, he would come down and help our little group with language. Uh, and we collect. And then I saw, hey, there's heaps of stories that have been written down early days, and uh, why don't we collect those and uh, put them, write them down? So I wrote down what I heard, uh, old people talking story and what I saw written down and collected it all and, and I come in combination with, uh, uh, people, uh, Gary Williams from, uh, Mulvoy Language Centre and Dallas Walker. We, we put together a lovely, uh, storybook in Gumbanga language and in English, uh, to preserve that part. The dictionary, this is the third edition now of that because uh, constantly discovering both uh, glitches and new words and uh, that fill out that. And as for the grammar, uh, because we've been teaching over the last 30 years or so, uh, we had to gradually compile it, uh, organise uh, sort of, you know, rules that go with the language and uh, and that turned into the grammar. Wow. Since working with Aboriginal people and having that put out through the education system and those things, how important do you think it is still to to keep recording uh, language and culture and also looking at it from the technology side of things have changed from, you know, 30 years ago and, I mean, it's always evolving. So. With them, unfortunately, yeah. my poor old brain is not not equipped with all the latest gadgetry. Uh, but I'd love to be able to do, for instance, from Murbai, we could do a, a kind of e-course, you know, mm-hmm. uh, where where people don't have to go long distances to come to the centre, but can actually catch up uh, as a group uh, through the internet. Uh, uh, there's things like Zoom and and uh, Skype that I'd love to be able to... Uh, I've only done it with individuals, but I think it'd be great to be able to get together with both my Aboriginal friends that are teachers and ones that need to learn, uh, and we could then do it in a group thing without actually always having to come together, which is quite a long distance sometimes. What important message do you have out there to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people about keeping a recording language? I think it's it's terribly important. We, for instance, uh, we've we've collected something like 20 to 30 old songs, and uh, 
uh, people feel a great sense of pride in recovering uh, a kind of a sense of, uh, of of heritage, identity, ownership, and I feel so sad when uh, people who actually still have those and uh, it might be story, it might be language, it might be song, and they don't realise how easy it is to lose those and how quickly they drain away unless they're recorded. When we launched the uh, the Dreaming Storybook, it was called the Gumbanga Yuludara Yandegam, Gumbanga Dreaming Story Collection, uh, the hall was packed and I could see a huge sense of pride in the people because that was their story, uh, all right, from various parts of the Gumbanga territory, but it, it was owned. And, and that pride, that sense of uh, uh, well-being that comes from a recovery of one's heritage, I think that's, uh, that's been the biggest thing that's given me great joy. Yeah, most definitely. Uh, well, on that note, Stephen, I would like to thank you for taking the time out uh, today and, and having a talk with me. Um, congratulations once again on being uh, one of the recipients for the, the Pudgy Doors Award for Indigenous Language Teachers. So thank you, Stephen, for joining us on the Karma oh, Network. Thank you. That was uh, Karma's Rena Walker speaking with brother Stephen Morelli. They're a joint winner of the uh, Pudgy Doors Award. Australia's premier award for achievement in teaching languages other than English. We're going to be hearing the latest in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news from around the country very shortly. But before then, we are going to go to a quick break. Hi, I'm Ricky Bloomfield, and you're listening to Strong Voices on Karma Radio. That's right, you're listening to Strong Voices here on Karma Radio this Tuesday morning. I'm very happy to welcome into the Karma Studios for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander news, uh, Karma's Paul Wiles. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, uh, Kyle, and good morning, listeners. Well, Paul, uh, a lot's happening around the country. I understand you have a story this morning in regards to, uh, we're heading across to Canada, in regards to the genocide of Indigenous women. Uh, it's, a, yeah, it's a tragic story, but it is one that has um, been developing over many, many, many years. And uh, uh, Canada's First Nations peoples uh, warned that a disproportionately large number of their women and girls were vanishing or being killed, and that the police investigations of the crime were careless and that their cries and pleas for help had been ignored. On Monday, the Canadian government-appointed commission that has been investigating the claims announced uh, an explosive conclusion. Canada's Indigenous women and girls are under siege and that their deaths and disappearances amount to race-based genocide. Um, <coughs> excuse me. The uh, Canadian National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls released its final report uh, um, at a ceremony which the um, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau and uh, family members of the victims uh, attended. Uh, he um, said genocide is the sum of the social practices, assumptions and actions detailed within the report uh, and it lays out in detail over more than 1,200 pages of how a mix of appalling apathy and colonialist structure has fuelled a national tragedy that has been centuries in the making. The Commission itself drew criticism from staff turnover 
and an alleged lack of transparency. Critics say the process won't bring justice because the power wasn't granted the authority to compel police to reopen cold cases. Uh, the Royal Canadian Mounted Police reported 1,181 cases of murdered and or missing Indigenous women and girls from 1980 to 2012. Uh, it says Indigenous women are six times as likely to be victims of homicide than non-Indigenous women. Uh, and the figures uh, have been reported as being a gross undercount, uh, so i.e., they weren't all included. So uh, a tragic story from Canada, but um, again, uh, showing that the uh, Canadian uh, people, like Australia, are starting to move forward and uh, revisit uh, many of the past uh, and still ongoing um, trage- tragedies uh, involving the loss of life of First Nations peoples. Mm, definitely very concerning, but you know, at, at least more of that light is beginning to get you know, shone on that area yeah. and, and yeah. let's hope those discussions continue to happen and, and change is implemented. Uh, on to our next story. Uh, Adam Goods, uh, the documentary maker of a recent uh, documentary looking at Adam Goods and his, you know, eventual leaving from the AFL, has uh, talked about the racism that uh, Adam Goods has experienced and is, is urging people to learn from that experience. So the director of a film exploring Adam Goods' uh, exit from the AFL following sustained booing by opposition fans has said the Aboriginal football star found it very traumatic to uh, relive the events when he had to then watch the film. The documentary is called The Final Quarter and it's compiled entirely from uh, archival footage of Goods's, uh, Goods and the events that preceded his 2015 departure from football after, after the booing episode sparked a national debate about racism. The film's director, Ian Darling, said uh, Goods had told him he would watch the documentary only once and it was a very difficult experience mm. for him to go through that. Uh, obviously having to relive something that yeah. had a very strong impact on his life. Well, you know, as one of uh, Australia's greatest uh, Aboriginal footballers, uh, Adam Goods and Adam um he didn't find that out himself until much later in his his life and his journey of discovery on on his uh, uh, roots and where he came from. Uh, but um, he certainly will go down in history as one of the greatest Aboriginal footballers. And uh, to have to leave the game under those circumstances, uh, you know, a lot of um, extremely negative racist um, comments that were being uh, thrown around and, um, at that time. But um, I suppose if any good did come out of uh, um, the whole journey for Adam Goods is the legacy that he left behind um, around racism, mm. which will continue to be revisited. And, um, uh, you know, let's hope now we have seen uh, from all of the footy clubs um, in the AFL uh, a major effort to stamp out racism. It's still alive, well and kicking, but um, certainly people now have to think twice if they're going to uh, either shout out a racist comment at a footy game or make a comment on a web page or on their Facebook Facebook page even uh, that uh, draws attention to them uh, being racist. 
Mm, because obviously there's a very big difference in terms of, you know, sledging a team or something like that if you're opposition as compared to a lot of the comments that were obviously being thrown towards Adam Goods. And I think it was an important journey in terms of shining that light and, and yeah. growing yeah. those conversations. So let, let's hope, as we mentioned, you know, we continue to see change within that space and, and you know, as we've seen over the years, the Aboriginal players having to, you know, stand up uh, against things like this. So, yep. yeah. Well, on that note, Paul, thank you so much for joining us for the news from around the country. Thank you. Well, that's going to conclude uh, Strong Voices for this morning. Thank you for tuning in. Hopefully you enjoyed the program. Thank you to all our guests who joined us as well. And uh, if you want to listen back to the program or any of the stories that we played this morning, make sure you head to uh, Karma's SoundCloud. We'll be back the same time tomorrow from 11 till 12. Strong Voices. Good job.